Hello, I'm Rob, and welcome to this week's edition of the Black Country Talking News for the 14th of June, 2023. Hello and welcome to the Black Country Talking News, brought to you by the sight loss charity Beacons. We're pleased to confirm that the Talking News is now available via Alexa. Once you've enabled the Talking Newspapers skill, all you need to do is play Talking Newspapers and ask for the Black Country Talking News. Our Talking News service is also available via the free Wireless for the Blind app. It can be found on the Beacon Centre website www.beaconvision.org forward slash talking dash news. As a podcast via services such as Apple or Spotify or as a free CD, simply contact Beacon Centre on 01902-880-111. We hope you enjoy this week's edition. Reading this week, we have myself Rob, Christine, Angela, Liz, Sportsman Ian, Helen, Mina, Simon, and of course not forgetting, Flashback Roger. In this week's edition we have Local News of the Black Country, an update from Beacon, The Quiz with Mina, special edition of this week's football feature from Ian, a Did You Know section from Flashback Roger, The Weather for the Week Ahead. And with the sunshine seemingly now set in, we have an article sharing some tips on things to do in the garden this month. Local news to start though, with Liz, Christine, Ian, but first, we have Angela. Nearly a quarter of vouchers available to help families with prepayment meters in the West Midlands to pay their energy bills as part of a government support scheme have not been claimed. With just weeks to go before they disappear forever. The vouchers were available as part of the Energy Bills Support Scheme, which took £400 off payments between October and March, and those with meters were encouraged to claim them at shops or post offices. But latest figures showed how thousands of people haven't done so, effectively missing out on free cash to help them pay their sky-high energy bills, with 23% still unclaimed. And the deadline to redeem them is fast approaching. Anyone who hasn't claimed the vouchers by June the 30th will lose the chance to get support. Government data showed tens of thousands of available vouchers to meter customers have not been redeemed. It may raise questions about how effectively the scheme has been communicated and if some residents are even aware the vouchers were available to them. Energy companies have been encouraged to remind customers about the offer. Families are also being urged to remind people who may be able to access money about the scheme in case they are unaware, particularly loved ones or neighbours or those who are elderly, vulnerable or don't speak English well. Just over 9,000 vouchers have gone unclaimed in Dudley, while there are around 16,000 in Wolverhampton and 17,500 in Sandwell. These three areas are among some of the most deprived in the country, where families are likely to be in the greatest need of support. There are concerns for meter customers in particular, as they are more likely to be worse off than those who can pay by direct debit. Matthew Eccles, Affordable Warmth Delivery Manager for the West Midlands Combined Authority, said, It is important that everyone receives all the help they are entitled to with their energy bills. People on prepayment meters tend to be those in the greatest need, but the hardest to reach. So we would encourage anyone who thinks a neighbour, family member or friend has not yet claimed the support to ensure they do so before the end of June deadline. BBC Radio WM 95.6 listener numbers drop as cutbacks planned. The findings come as a union calls for better funding for local BBC services. Figures for radio listenership are compiled by RAJAR, Radio Joint Audience Research, which carries out an ongoing survey of users based on what stations they listen to and for how long. The latest data estimates... BBC Radio WM, which serves the West Midlands, reached an average of 199,000 listeners each week in the six months to March. 
This was down from around 240,000 in the six months to March 2022. Over this period, the market share of BBC Radio WM fell from 2.2% to 1.2% compared to other available stations. In October, the corporation set out proposals that would see local radio stations share more content and broadcast fewer programmes unique to their areas. It would mean local programming restricted before 2pm and afternoon programmes across England would be shared between its 39 local radio stations. In the latest survey period, the average listener tuned in to BBC WM for around 2.5 hours every week, clocking up a total of 491,000 hours weekly. The Department for Culture, Media and Sport said it remains disappointed about plans to reduce local output and has met with BBC bosses to express their concerns. A spokesperson for the BBC said these figures often fluctuate, particularly for news and community-focused stations such as local radio. We have a plan to reach more people with local stories and news across England over the next 12 months. They added... We know audience habits are changing, which is why we need to transform what we do to achieve a better balance between our local online and broadcast services. We are committed to reaching more people in more communities across England. With 17.4 fast food restaurants per 100,000 people, Wolverhampton has been named one of the UK's fast food capitals. Wolverhampton ranks in 7th place, the highest place of any town or city in the West Midlands, with Newcastle coming out as fast food capital with 27.5 fast food restaurants per 100,000 people. When looking at the most popular fast food restaurant across the UK, McDonald's is the clear winner, with KFC taking second spot and Subway in third. Since 2013, the number of fast food restaurants in the UK has increased by over 31%, with the country now home to over 48,000 restaurants, compared to just over 37,000 back in 2013. A 40-year-old Aston Martin that has been restored in Bridge North has reached its goal of hitting 200 miles an hour in a speed test last week. The Aston Martin Bulldog never achieved its 200 miles an hour top speed when it rolled off the production line in 1979. The Bulldog was designed by Aston Martin in 1977 to be the fastest production car on the road. However, in late 1979, the Bulldog only recorded a top speed of 191 miles an hour, just short of the hoped for 200 miles an hour. Now the Bulldog has been driven to victory by three times Le Mans 24-hour class winner Darren Turner, a works driver for Aston Martin, who previously got the Bulldog to 176 miles an hour in tests at the Royal Naval Air Station at Yeovilton in 2021. He smashed the Aston Martin's top speed at the Macrehanish airfield, a former NATO base in Campbelltown, Scotland, last Tuesday and hit a recorded top speed of 205.4 miles an hour. Darren said Bulldog's 200 miles an hour goal has been over 40 years in the making. Being part of that legacy is a fantastic feeling. The Bulldog has now fulfilled Aston Martin's 1980s promise, and everyone who has worked on the car, from those who first designed and built it, to classic motor cars who undertook the restoration under the management of Richard Gauntlet, can feel very proud. Originally, the once originally the one-of-a-kind bulldog was to be one of 15 to 20, but the project was deemed too costly by Aston Martin and the car was sold off to its first owner, a Saudi prince, for £130,000. On his first drive, the engine blew up. The bulldog was then passed from owner to owner, occasionally appearing in car concourse around the world. It mostly featured in top 10 most influential prototype car lists online until it hit the headlines in 2020 when new owner Philip Sarafim asked Richard Gauntlet, the son of the former owner of Aston Martin, Victor Gauntlet, to manage the restoration. Richard Gauntlet chose Classic Motor Cars Limited in Bridge North, Shropshire, to restore the Bulldog, having restored some of the most historic cars in the world. 
Their engineers worked on the Bulldog over an 18-month period involving 7,000 hours of restoration and hundreds of hours carried out on testing and adjustment. Philip Sarofim, owner of the Aston Martin Bulldog, said, Today is about making dreams come true, the dreams of the original designers and engineers who created Bulldog. Those automotive pioneers were breaking barriers, not just speed barriers, but frontiers of design, innovation and engineering. Up next, we hear from Helen, who of course has for us the Beacon update. Hi everyone, it's Helen from Beacon, back with your weekly update. And what a week it's been here at Beacon, as we have been celebrating all of our wonderful volunteers as part of National Volunteer Week. We start with our longest serving volunteer. So get ready for this, 1994, the year when the National Lottery launched and when the Vicar of Dibley first aired on our TV screen. Seems quite a long time ago, doesn't it? Well, it was also incredibly the year that Pat Smith started volunteering in our Bilston shop. How amazing is that? During National Volunteers Week, we surprised Pat and some of the other members of our Bilston volunteer team with some cakes to show our appreciation. Thank you for your incredible dedication, Pat. So during the week, we also gave out our annual volunteer awards, one of our highlights of Volunteers Week, definitely. And if you want to, you can find out more about the winners on our website, www.beaconvision.org. And lastly, on volunteers, do you reckon you can make a difference for us? Well, whether you have 30 minutes or three hours of your time to give each week, your support would be so appreciated here at Beacon. As well as helping others, you might find that becoming a volunteer does you the world of good. There are loads of roles available, whether that's at our centre, in our shops or even becoming a befriending volunteer, which you can do from your own home. If you'd like to find out more, why not give us a call? 01902-880-111. Now, you may know that Father's Day is coming up soon. We know here that at Beacon it can be a difficult day for some, but if there's a man in your life that you'd like to show how much he means to you, why not give him a gift from our Made by Fab Lab range? With purchases supporting our work as a charity, it really will be the gift that keeps on giving. Shop now via our Etsy page. You just search for Made by Fab Lab. That's all one word and you can shop. There's also some items available in our retail shops as well. And talking of our shops, our retail team are also marking dads everywhere with some Father's Day themed window displays. They are so creative. So we just had to share an amazing Father's Day window display put together by our Hales Owen shop manager, Sarah, on social media. From making a skirt with ties to hand making a dress from newspapers, no less, she has done an amazing job. If you want to go and check it out for yourself, you can find the location of a shop on our website, www.beaconvision.org forward slash shop. That's it for this week. I'll be back again soon with another update. Bye bye. Cheers that update, Helen. Up now, we're our next block of local news. And starting this one off, we first hear Christine. What a lot of millionaires there are in the West Midlands. Birmingham is the luckiest city in the country for lottery winners, with 205 new millionaires created since the lottery began. Latest figures from national lottery operator Camelot show the city has also been getting luckier in recent months, with 35 new millionaires being created over the past three years. That is almost one new millionaire every month. Wolverhampton also has one of the best success rates in the UK, having the 10th best rate of lottery millionaires per head of population. The figures show that the B postcode area, which also includes Hales Owen, Tamworth and most of Sandwell, has seen 205 winners receiving £1 million or more since the National Lottery was launched in 1994. That places it well ahead of second-placed Belfast, which has had 174 winners over the same time, and third-place Glasgow, which has had 158. One in 5,890 people living in the WV postcode area is a lottery millionaire putting Wolverhampton and the surrounding areas in the top 10 nationally for jackpot winners. 
Major lottery winners from the West Midlands include £1 million wins on the Euro Millions lottery for some lucky residents of Wolverhampton in 2015 and 2018, a couple from Kings Winford scooping a massive £9.3 million on the lotto in 2012, a Dudley duo claiming a cool £2 million on the lotto in 2006, and a win in Wensbury like no other, with a phenomenal £15.5 million on the Lotto Extra in 2001. A black country viewer of Lorraine Kelly was given a big surprise when she received a knock on the door. The knock on the door from Andy Peters came at around 9.30am on Friday at an address in Wolverhampton. It was part of the Wake Up A Winner competition on the Lorraine show on ITV. The presenter knocked on the door, which was said to be in a secret location, and after meeting the husband, Rob, first, was greeted by a visibly emotional Helen, who was in the middle of a work meeting. He then announced she was the winner of £10,000, which was followed with ticker tape and questions to a clearly overwhelmed Helen about what she was going to spend the money on. After taking time to compose herself, she said the money would come in handy for her two children and possibly a family holiday. She said it's going to make a massive difference as we've got both girls' birthdays this month and the oldest is going to university. We've also got family in New York, so hopefully we'll be able to go. Andy Peters also asked Rob if he had known that Helen was entering the competition, with Rob saying, Not a clue as we work at home on Fridays in different parts of the house, so she could have been doing anything. Everyone loves a bad boy. From the boy with the top knot to East End bad boy, Wolverhampton-born Aaron Tiara has been hailed as villain of the year. Aaron's most notoriously known as his East Enders counterpart, Ravjot Singulati. He's taken home the award for his performance on the BBC Soap at the British Soap Awards 2023. The Wolverhampton actor took home the top award after playing career gangster and all-round bad boy Ravi with his first on-screen appearance being in July 2022. During the 2023 awards ceremony, Aaron could be seen laughing as he took to the stage after being announced as the award winner, thanking fans for the nomination. In his winning speech, Aaron said, To my wonderful cast members, you inspire me to raise the bar, to be diligent in preparation. Without all of you, this character wouldn't work. Before I started, Chris and I and a few other producers talked about how we would like to execute this character and we settled on a love to hate. So, if you hate him, that's alright. And if you love him, that's alright too. Aaron was born in Wolverhampton in 1993, where he went on to train at the East 13 Acting School in Exeter, before appearing in a number of productions and finally landing a spot on EastEnders in 2022. He also featured in the 2017 hit BBC television drama The Boy with a Top Knot, where he played the role of Hardip. The drama follows the best-selling memoir of Sathnam Sangera, a journalist and author who grew up in the deprived Heathtown areas of Wolverhampton. The memoir is described by the BBC as a humorous, touching and emotional story of a second-generation Indian family growing up in Britain. The drama was met with critical acclaim, getting four and a half stars out of five on IMDb and featured Sasha Darwan. A wine created in South Staffordshire has won a coveted silver medal in World Awards. Chardonnay 2019 from Halfpenny Green Wine Estate near Bobbington was recognised in the Decanter World Wine Awards, which celebrated its 20th anniversary this year. The awards are recognised as the largest and most influential in the world due to the rigorous judging process. Wines are judged by 236 specialist judges from 30 countries. Judges noticed that the halfpenny green wine had toasty oak character with slight buttery notes, soft and generous on the palate with a moderate complex finish. The winery at Tom Lane also received a bronze medal for its classic Cuvée Brute sparkling wine. The vineyard is run by the Vickers family. Farmer Martin Vickers planed the first half acre in 1983 
and it now covers 30 acres. DWWA saw a record 18,250 wines from 57 countries judged. Simon Field, regional chairman for the UK at DWWA, said two main things stood out about UK entries this year. Firstly, the increase in both volume and quality of the still wines submitted. Their provenance, as varied as their quality, was consistent. The quality of the sparklers, secondly, continues to impress as the category takes on maturity, as the wines and winemakers alike take on a little more age, it becomes increasingly clear that the long-held faith in such things has most definitely not been informed by misguided patriotism. DWWA co-chairman Ronan Saburn said of the DWWA results, I think it's the toughest wine competition to enter because the standards are very, very high. The medals have to be earned. Now it's time to test your knowledge, as we have the quiz questions for this edition, and they're brought to us by Mina. Hello and welcome to this week's Flashback Quiz. All the answers you need can be found later in Flashback Rogers' Did You Know feature. But for now, these are your questions. Here we go. Question 1. In what year did Gloucesterbury Festival start? Question 2. How long ago is it thought festivals have taken place? Question 3. Where in Britain is the Free Rotation Festival held? Question 4. Which Desert in Africa holds the festival of the desert. Question 5. What is the name of the chilliest ever festival? And finally, question 6. Which three English cities host the three choirs festival? I will be back with you later in the show. But for now, best of luck. Cheers for those questions, Mina. I'll get my mind working on those. Up now, however, it's another block of local news. Hero Hound. Two puppies who escaped from a house in the black country have been reunited with their owner thanks to the help of a teaching assistant and a specially trained dog. Mary Webb Reynolds from Codsall left her two five-month-old puppies, Albie and Charlie, with a dog sitter while she went to work at Wolverhampton College on May the 18th. However, she soon got a phone call with the devastating news that the pair had managed to flee from the house after escaping through the front door. Plenty of drama ensued in the chase across Penderford over the following eight hours, but thankfully tragedy was averted due to the outstanding work of a dog called Giemba. Mary and her colleague Marcia Hocking both teach health and social care at Wolverhampton College and were in the office together when Mary received the news that her beloved puppies had escaped and were nowhere to be found. She was absolutely distraught, Marcia said. I heard Mary take the phone call and say, What do you mean they've gone? Mary lost her two old dogs late last year. They were about 16 or 17, so for this to happen to her puppies, it was devastating for her. After telling Marcia, I have to go, the puppies are gone, Mary immediately rushed out to coordinate a search for her darling pets, posting pictures of Albie and Charlie on every local social media page she could find. The work of social media proved instrumental in helping to locate the puppies, with concerned dog lovers informing Mary of sightings throughout the day. One tip-off led to Mary and her nephew finding Charlie, but unfortunately, after her nephew picked him up, the puppy jumped out of his arms and ran out of view. A subsequent message informed the concerned dog owner that Charlie had been seen by the canal in Penderford, so Mary and her family headed there in hope of finding him. The poor puppy had fallen into the canal behind St Paul's Church of England Primary School, but thankfully... Aaron Richardson, a teaching assistant at the school, had spotted Charlie and was able to rescue him from the canal. While Mary was thrilled to have been reunited with Charlie, there was still heartache over the whereabouts of Albie. 
the five-month-old puppies were still small and incredibly vulnerable, and Charlie was astonishingly lucky to have been found. His fate could have been much worse. For another four hours, Mary kept walking up and down along the canal and adjacent areas in Pendiford, desperately searching for her missing puppy. Marcia had been in contact with her colleagues since she had rushed out of the office and offered to enlist the help of one of her dogs, Jemba. Jemba, derived from the Aboriginal word for laughing star, had recently undertaken man-trailing lessons, which proved to be invaluable in the search for Albie. The four-year-old Australian Kelpie and his owner headed over to the fields near Warbaston Road, where Albie had last been reportedly seen. Along with Marcy's friend Lynn, who helps her with puppy classes and rescue work, Marcia and Jemba scoured the fields in order to find the missing puppy. At this point, it was around 7pm and people feared that the little puppy would not last the night on his own. The land they were searching, near where the puppy had last been seen, had a very dense undergrowth and was bordered by the main road, making the task even more challenging. However, Jemba took to the task admirably, sniffing Albie's scent from a blanket that the two puppies slept on. At first he kept going back to Charlie, Marcia said, but then he just kept following the scent through the undergrowth. We had to climb and crawl through bushes and brambles. We went quite some distance. Jemba kept looking out to the road and led us through a hedgerow which we squashed through. We carried on and on, putting our heads in the bushes, when all of a sudden, Jemba put his head into the bush, and then another head came out with him. It was Albie. I just felt an overwhelming surge of relief that we'd found this little dog. Mary said, it was like seeing something in slow motion. Marcia came out with Albie in her arms, and we all burst into tears. In 30 minutes, Jemba had found him. It was all thanks to Jemba. She added, I want to say a big thank you to everybody who took the time to help us. There were a lot of dog lovers out with us, especially the teacher who found Charlie. Further reports of wild parakeet sightings have been flying in as experts warn that the species could become more common than ever before. It comes after Stourbridge resident Bridget Hand captured an amazing photo of one of the birds at Mary Stevens Park. The increased sightings have split the opinions of bird lovers and experts alike, who both call for the non-native species to be more closely watched as they begin to spread. The wild ring-necked parakeets have become a more common sighting around the West Midlands in the last few years as the birds exponentially breed in the area. Matt Kirby, owner of Oak Ecology, an ecological survey provider, said these birds can be quite territorial and can also be combative with other species over food sources. They tend to nest between March and September, but are also known to nest at other times of the year if the weather is right. The opportunistic birds are known to lay between two to four eggs per nest, but can occupy multiple nests if conditions are correct. Wild parakeets have been spotted in several black country green areas as they fight for space. Mr Kirby continued, Parakeets are opportunists, so they will take any chance to hold a nest that they can. They are lovely birds to see around, but can be invasive. It takes around 40 to 50 days from hatching to fledgling, so a rough estimate is around two months from laying an egg to leaving the nest, which could mean that we will see a lot more of these birds in the next year or so. One of Europe's oldest chimpanzees has reached the milestone age of 50. Coco was born at Dudley Zoo in the West Midlands in 1973, and has lived at Whipsnade Zoo near Dunstable, Bedfordshire, since 2006. The oldest chimpanzee on the continent, the similarly named Coco, spelt C-O-C-O, as opposed to K-O-K-O, celebrated her 58th birthday in April at Twycross Zoo in Leicestershire. Chimpanzees in captivity generally live to about 33 years of age, according to the Press Association. The oldest chimpanzee on record is Little Mama, who was thought to be in her late 70s when she died in a Florida safari park in 2017. Coco's favourite foods are gem lettuces and cherry tomatoes. 
Grant Timberlake, primate keeper at Whipsnade Zoo, said Coco was in brilliant health but had mild arthritis in her hands. She received low-level laser treatments that kept her pain-free and fully mobile. Coco has contributed to several important conservation projects for her species. Ultrasound examinations on her heart helped experts understand cardiovascular disease in great apes. Coco's landmark birthday makes her one of the oldest chimpanzees in Europe. In 2007, Coco briefly escaped her enclosure with another chimpanzee. She was recaptured, but Johnny, her fellow escapee, was killed due to the threat he posed to the public. Coco is Whipsnade's oldest mammal, but Gladys the flamingo is the zoo's oldest animal. She will turn 53 in July. More local news to follow. But now Pete's got an idea which may help with the visual discomfort some people get from bright lights and glare. If you need help with sight loss, then filter glasses might help you. Filter glasses are a range of glasses specially for sight loss, designed to protect your eyes from harmful UV rays and reduce glare and bright light, and also improve contrast as well. They make things clearer to see and your eyes more comfortable. They can either be worn on their own, or you can wear them over your existing prescription glasses. Wearing a sun hat or a baseball cap or a sun visor can also help too. So if you'd like to try the range of Cocoon filter glasses and find the right lens and frame to make life a bit more comfortable for you, then call Beacon Sight Loss Advisors for an appointment. You can call on 01902 880 and ask for a sight loss advisor. Coming up next on this week's edition of the Black Country Talking News, we have another block of local news. Anyone within a few miles of RAF Cosford will be aware of the annual air show. Intermittent roars burst through the air on show day and of course there is the visit of the iconic Red Arrows to look forward to. For every person paying to watch them close up inside Cosford, there will be 10 craning their necks for a view in fields, laybys and upstairs windows outside. For decades, Cosford Airshow has thrilled the crowds with its spectacular aerial displays. It is an unmissable annual date in the calendar for enthusiasts. For one day of action with entertainment both in the air and on the ground, the airfield swells to the size of a significant town, drawing enormous crowds from across the region. Its stunning success has sometimes proven a problem in itself, in 2009, so many people turned up that show full signs went up, leaving thousands shut out and disappointed. The attendance was at 58,300 and lessons have been learned. There have been those rare years when the show has been grounded. In 2003, it was war, the impending Iraq war, which led to its cancellation. It was the first time ever that a Cosford air show which had been planned, did not go ahead. Of late, it has been a different kind of war, the fight against the coronavirus pandemic, which left aviation buffs and families disappointed. And as the air show raises cash for four RAF charities, the RAF Association, the RAF Benevolent Fund, the RAF Charitable Trust and the RAF Museums, its absence was a heavy blow. The show's loss to COVID made last year's return all the more sweet. Every year brings its own highlights, from the regulars of the Red Arrows to the evocative roar of the Spitfire and to those rare and precious I Was There occasions, like the display by the last flying Vulcan bomber and an Apache attack helicopter display team featuring Prince Harry. RAF Cosford has been part of the fabric of the West Midlands for generations, its formation coming pre-war in 1938 as a technical training school. 
While there were some one-off displays and open days in the years that followed, the start of the modern public Cosford Air Show goes back to Saturday, June the 3rd, 1978. It was billed as a 40th anniversary open day and it came in the 60th anniversary year of the foundation of the RAF. Those arriving at the event were welcomed in a pamphlet by Group Captain R.L. Smith, who was commanding officer at RAF Cosford. He reminded visitors of the key role of the airbase in the war effort, saying, In addition to training, Number 9 Maintenance Unit, an aircraft storage unit, was established to process a variety of fighter and bomber aircrafts, and many of the horse gliders employed in the invasion of Europe in 1944 were built at Cosford. In 1940, a 500-bed hospital was opened and had a distinguished record until its closure in December 1977. The 1978 show marked something else, the takeover of the famous Cosford Aerospace Museum, which had the largest collection of historic aircraft in the country, by officials from the RAF Museum attendant. A crowd estimated at more than 30,000 flocked to watch the action in a two-hour display, in which top of the bill were the Red Arrows aerobatic team. Other aircraft which took part included a Spitfire and Hurricane of the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight, a Vulcan bomber and a Nimrod anti-submarine aircraft. Perhaps it was all meant as a one-off. Nothing happened until September 1980, when there was a private air show at Cosford for school children as part of a careers day. There was a show on June the 14th, 1981, although it was billed as an international aerobatic competition rather than the flying display. However, the air show as we know it was clearly soon to become an established annual event which grew during the 1980s. By one measure, Cosford is an unlikely airfield for a big event because by modern standards the runway is very short. As it is incapable of safely operating jets, those airshow regulars, the Red Arrows, use RAF Shawbury instead and then fly on to Cosford for their display to help make the show an annual rip-roaring success. For the 50,000 that descended on the Cosford airshow last weekend, the weather was kind. From the Red Arrows flying high, the hurricane on the ground, to the vintage entertainers in the bandstand, there was a massive interactive feast of activities for all generations to enjoy. And for those that may have dropped in to view the museum's current exhibition, marking the 80th anniversary of the Dambusters raid, there may also have been an unexpected flight of fancy. In a corner of Cosford's RAF Museum, a visitor stared closely at this gleaming bomber and attempted to make sense of the ghostly scene before him. Sitting in the cockpit appeared to be the spectre of a young pilot, fair-haired and clad in polonect sweater. It was not the first time the bomber that refuses to die has been linked with things that go bump in the night. It's ghosts say believers, include the Phantom Whistler and Pete the Poltergeist. Other visitors have claimed to see a similarly dressed apparition walking around the hangar or the outline of a ghost, his features swathed in a flying helmet in the cramped confines of the navigation dome. In 1984, a shocked cameraman filming for ITV holiday show Wish You Were Here alleged to have encountered the spectre of a serviceman. Seven years later, the Shropshire Star published a photograph taken by reader William Fletcher, appearing to show a ghost in the rear gunner's turret. The Avro Lincoln RF-398, a craft where instruments mysteriously spring into life, doors open and close, is claimed to be the world's most haunted plane. A restored machine that has been at the centre of a string of paranormal investigations, it has made national headlines and spawned X-File type TV documentaries. 
Tales of the Living Dead seemed to have been truly debunked decades ago when mischievous museum engineers admitted hatching a poltergeist plot to scupper plans to move the bomber from Cosford to Manchester Air and Space Museum. They concocted stories of spirits. Yet the spirit sightings have continued long after the workers' confession and they were given considerable gravitas when a BBC camera crew claimed to have seen the face of a spectre reflected in the cockpit glass behind reporter Maureen Carter. Maureen amassed 30 witness accounts of ghostly sightings for the programme. Phantom or fake news, visitors to the museum's current exhibition marking the 80th anniversary of the Dambusters raid would do well to tread carefully when approaching Avro Lincoln RF-398. Respected Staffordshire war historians Richard Pursehouse and Ben Cunliffe have recently carried out their own investigation into the raft of claims and counterclaims. The duo's conclusion? The jury's still out, said Richard from Cannock. The undisputed fact is RF-398, first flown in September 1945, never saw combat. It was based at RAF Abingdon and moved to Crossford in the summer of 1968. From there, the waters get more muddied, the story decidedly murkier. Engineers got wind of the fact RF-398, a craft they'd lovingly cared for, was to be moved and decided to create the ghost plane legend. One of them, Richard Garside, said, The star of the museum should always remain there. We wanted RF-398 to stay at Cosford. We actually invented a ghost on the Lincoln. The more people that came to see it, the more chance the aircraft would stay. In 1979, the first faux-other-world encounter was leaked to the national press and the tabloids lapped it up. As one engineer worked in the cockpit, his colleague spotted a spectre approach the bomber then simply disappear into thin air, reporters were told. To add a little more spice to the yarn, the two men claimed that the following day, aircraft parts were found mysteriously scattered on the floor below RF-398. The team were merely warming up. More stories soon surfaced. An electrician claimed he slipped while working on RF-398 and braced himself for a heavy impact with the hard floor below. Yet, as if caught by an invisible force, he was gently lowered to the ground. In 1980, Richard Garside revealed a staff member had spotted a figure moving inside the bomber while switching the hangar lights off. A thorough search found nothing. From the team's tall tales, others grew from a variety of sources. The hoax had grown legs. A May 1980 feature that carried the dramatic banner headline, Images that haunt the air, suggested the spectre was not a member of RF-398's crew. The ghost was that of a Polish Spitfire pilot condemned to roam the hangar after the remains of his downed crate were discovered in Shropshire and brought to Cosford. As proof, the newspaper article carried a photograph of three volunteers working on the wreck. Yet when the film was developed, a fourth figure, unknown to anyone working at Cosford, could be seen. At the same time, claims of the hangar door suddenly sliding open during a nighttime group visit hit the newsstands. In March 1989, the Sunday Mirror informed its readers the spirit of a pilot had been seen opening another door. The accompanying photograph was inconclusive. Once again, a landmark moment had been captured by an individual with a very poor camera and extremely shaky hands. A paranormal frenzy enveloped RF-398 and those engineers who came up with the ruse could hardly hide the grins on their faces. Richard Garside added, About 1980 or 1981, we were informed the Lincoln was staying at Cosford. Our task with the phony ghost was completed. The haunting ceased because there was no need. We had saved the aircraft. They couldn't stop the spook stories, however. The haunting had far from ceased. Reports of strange happenings around RF-398 continued. Ghost hunter Peter Underwood and a team of paranormal investigators climbed into the RF-398 for an all-night vigil. 
They emerged next day with wild claims of seeing a figure in a flying jacket and parachute harness walking towards the plane. The phantom seemed to evaporate after a loud, unexplained noise was heard in the hangar. Chesterfield Paranormal Research Group visited Cosford in 1987. Tape recordings that night considerably cranked up the mystery. They appeared to capture the sounds of an operational aircraft. Clicks, taps, muffled voices, sighs, Morse code bleeps and the drone of other planes. After listening to the tapes, former Lincoln bomber pilot Phil Pritchett said, The noises certainly sounded like the normal noises that we get on an aeroplane, but somewhat modified. By February 1991, even highbrow BBC Radio 4 had joined the ghostly clamour. Producer Gwyn Richards was among a broadcast team who joined Ivan Spenceley on another nocturnal ghost watch. More clicks and bumps were captured on tape and those taking part alleged tiny lights danced in the fuselage. Mr Richards said, This tiny pinprick of light was moving slightly from one side to the other, but one letter sent by a listener after the broadcast gave me a possible explanation. When the crew was on night flying, they used to reverse the little concave reflector in their torches and cover the bulb with them, so that only a tiny pinprick of light was emitted from the torch, saving the pilot's night vision. In the same year, Dave Young and Steve Ray, two Wolverhampton Polytechnic psychology lecturers, spent weeks researching RF398 secrets. A study that included making recordings, taking video footage and monitoring temperature changes. Their research proved inconclusive and final. Cosford Air Museum declined any further requests for paranormal investigations. That was not the end of the ghosts of RF 398. Far from it. In 1996, ITV paranormal show Strange But True, hosted by Michael Aspel, aired an explanation for the rash of paranormal activity. Apparently, Master Pilot Hiller flew RF-398 on its final flight and loved her so much, he promised he would haunt his baby when he died. Hiller transferred to a de Havilland Dove aircraft and died shortly after when the plane crashed near Cosford, viewers were informed. Parts of the wreckage were allegedly brought to RAF Cosford, Hiller's ghost residing in the twisted metal. A nice story, a gripping story, but bunkum. Historians Pursehouse and Cunliffe have discovered. There is no record of a master pilot Hiller and RF-398's final flight was piloted by Flight Lieutenant John Langley. Over the years, mediums have claimed the Lincoln bomber is haunted by two spirits, one a 19-year-old wireless operator, the other a wartime pilot. The ghosts even serenaded one medium with a selection of 1940s classics. That is a step too far into the supernatural. Walk this earth if you must, cruel spirits, but please, spare us the karaoke. Up now, it's trivia time, brought to us by Flashback Roger and his Did You Know feature. Hello again everyone. Well ain't this spell of fine weather being lovely. It's so nice to feel warm without being wrapped up in scarves and whatnot. And I've been reading about alfresco entertainment with the summer coming on, and it made me think about the festivals that are around and about. So now then, did you know that? The first Glastonbury Festival, which was launched in 1970 with tickets costing £1, including free milk from the farm, but this year's tickets, however, are £355 each for the five-day event, with no mention of free milk, by the way, and were sold out in minutes. Originally called the Pilton Festival, it was set up by dairy farmer Michael Evis, CBE, and continues to be held at his 150-acre farm in Somerset. And festivals are older than you might think. Originating from the 10th century BC and beyond, that's around 3,000 years ago, in ancient Greece, music festivals were nearly as popular as they are today. Although they've changed a lot over the years, 
That would include competitions in music, poetry, drama and athletics. Lots of feasting and the odd sacrifice to the gods and a bit of debauchery too, no doubt. The world's most exclusive festival is here in Britain. You must be a member to attend the free rotation in Hayon Wai and in order to be a member you must be invited by an existing member. Members can only invite people on one day each year in April and as they receive such high volumes of applicants this is decided by a lottery. Tickets are then sold in small batches between December and May. And probably the world's most remote festival is the Festival of the Desert in Essakane in Mali, Africa. Music lovers really looking to escape the beaten track can try this festival hidden deep in the Sahara Desert. The site is a half a day's drive or three days by camel from the nearest town and I don't suppose this one will ever get waterlogged like Glastonbury often is. On the opposite end of the thermometer, the chilliest ever music festival is the Snow Globe Music Festival, an outdoor festival in the snow. This one-of-a-kind festival is held in South Lake Tahoe, USA, in the three days and the lead-up to New Year's Eve. This is the festival for skiers and snowboarders, but also music lovers with a taste for adventure. The Three Choirs Festival is the oldest classical choral festival in the world, having run every year since 1719. The week-long festival rotates each summer between the English cathedral cities of Hereford, Gloucester and Worcester, and is celebrated its 300th anniversary in 2019. Also, there you have it. Whether you fancy a bit of heavy rock and some head-banging music, or prefer something sedate and genteel, there's a festival out there to suit all tastes. Me? Well, I'm off. I'll stick to Radio 2 or the like, and snooze away in my deck chair with some peaceful sounds. Till next week, then, I'll just say bye for now. Ta-ra a bit. Ta-ra! Now then, where have I put me son at? Up now, we're to hear what the weather has in store for us. Brought to us, as always, by Mina. The weather for this week ahead is forecast to remain dry and warm, with plenty of sunny intervals. But there is a strong chance of thunderstorms as we head into next week. Temperatures are forecast to stay glorious with highs of around 25 degrees in places. With prolonged spells of sunshine, UV levels are expected to stay high. So again, do remember to stay safe and protect yourselves if you are out in the sun for a lengthy period of time. The sunrise and sunset times are 4.45am for the sunrise and 9.35pm for the sunset. Friday 16th of June is forecast to be clear, dry with sunny spells. With a gentle breeze, temperatures are expected to be lovely at 25 degrees. The sunshine and clear skies look set to stick with us as we head into the weekend with Saturday and Sunday both forecast to be full of sunny intervals and little cloud whatsoever. Temperatures should remain very pleasant and may even peak at around 26 degrees. On to next week and the sunny weather will continue to dominate. It is forecast for the settled spell of warm weather to remain in the region on Monday 19th of June. With just a gentle breeze expected, temperatures should continue to be around 23 degrees. The sunny spells shall remain on Tuesday 20th of June and it will be largely dry right through to Thursday 22nd of June. However, with the continued humidity, there is a strong risk of some thunder showers developing throughout the week with a chance of heavy rain and hail. So, please do take care. Well, that's your weather for this week. As always, enjoy the weather. Cheers for that weather update, Mina. Up now, with a special edition of this week's football feature from Ian. When Stourbridge-born Jude Bellingham joins Spanish giant Real Madrid this summer, he also becomes part of a select band of players. The club's stellar signings include the likes of David Beckham, Michael Owen and Gareth Bale from these Isles. But it was almost 45 years ago when the first player blazed a trail from England to Los Blancos. 
and like Bellingham, he made the trip from the West Midlands to the Bernabeu, albeit not via Germany. Albion's dazzling and dancing winger, Laurie Cunningham, was the first Englishman to swap these shores for the bright lights and glamour of Real Madrid, making the move back in 1979. His story is a fascinating one, from London to Madrid via Albion, and one that ended tragically and prematurely. The flying winger was raised in London by Jamaican parents, and from an early age showed a love for not just football, but also dancing. His displays in junior football saw Arsenal hand him a schoolboy contract, but after two years he was deemed not the right material. Leighton Orient would pick up Cunningham, and he would go on to be remembered for decades to come for his displays both on and off the pitch. Such was his impact on the field at Orient, a statue of him was unveiled in a park near Brisbane Road back in 2017. Of it he was a lover of dancing and fashion. According to reports, he was regularly fined for being late, fines he would pay with money earned at dance competitions. Albion then came calling, and it was at the Hawthorns where Cunningham would showcase his unbelievable talent that would ultimately lead to his Spanish move. Cunningham would only spend two years at the Hawthorns, but they are two years that are still remembered fondly by Albion fans to this day. Alongside Brendan Batson and Cyril Regis, he blazed a trail for black players in England and had to put up with often horrifying racial abuse from the stands. Batson previously revealed they would turn up to games and be spat at by members of the National Front. But that didn't impact Albion's playing ability, and it certainly did not impact Cunningham's. He would become synonymous with gliding down the wing on boggy pitches and turning the opposition fullback inside out time after time. His breakthrough season came in 78-79, when Albion only fell away from Division 1 title contention right at the end of the season. Everyone sat up and took notice when he and Albion tore apart Manchester United in a famous 5-3 victory. England caps followed, but at the end of that campaign, Cunningham reportedly had disagreements with Albion over his salary. The move to Madrid came in 1979 for £950,000, a record for both clubs. It began well for Cunningham, and his first El Clasico was one to remember. Not for Real's 2-0 win, but for his display. With even Barcelona fans standing to applaud the former flying baggy. At times in Spain, like at Albion, he was unplayable. Ex-Spain boss Vincente del Bosque who was a teammate at Madrid, once described him as the Cristiano Ronaldo of his era. But injuries would plague his time in Spain. He suffered a nasty one in the 1980-81 season, ending his campaign, and he would be fined £20,000 by the club after he was pictured dancing in a nightclub with a plaster cast on his leg. He did return, but another injury, this time in training, led to him being out for even longer. Off the field, he suffered family tragedy after his brother's partner and her two children were murdered. It was a case that would only be solved 28 years later, after a request for information from a journalist writing a book on Cunningham's life. Short-term spells and loans with Manchester United, Sporting Gijón, Marseille, Leicester City, Rayo Vallecano and Wimbledon followed, and he did win the FA Cup with the latter, but he was never the same player. He returned to Rayo Vallecano in 1988. But a year later, his career and his life came to a tragic end. Cunningham was involved in a car crash that saw his vehicle hit a lamppost and flip several times. Passenger in the car survived. Cunningham, however, was pronounced dead in the hospital, aged 33. It was a tragic end to a once sparkling career, but his legacy lives on today. As well as his statue at Leighton Orient, a three degrees statue was unveiled in West Bromwich in 2019. When you talk about pioneering black players in football, his name is one of the first to be mentioned, and he will always be the first British player to turn out for Real Madrid. Have you done any good at the quiz this week? Well... Now's the time to find out, as we have the quiz answers. 
Hello, and here are your answers for this week's flashback quiz. Feeling confident? How will you score? Let's see. Question one. In what year did Glastonbury festivals start? And the answer, 1970. Question two. How long ago is it thought festivals have taken place? And the answer here, of course, is 3,000 years. Question three. Where in Britain is the Free Rotation Festival held? And the answer here is Hay on Way. Question four. Which desert in Africa holds the Festival of the Desert? And the answer here is the Sahara. Question five. What was the name of the chilliest ever festival? And the answer here is the Snow Globe Festival. And finally, question six. Which three English cities host the Three Choirs Festival? And the answer, Hereford, Gloucester and Worcester. Did you get them all right? If not, not to worry, as I will be back next week to test you all once again. Bye for now. Want to know how to get ahead in the garden for the coming season? Here's some top tips from the experts at MK Pulse magazine. TNF Soundings. Features from across the UK. This is Jan with some seasonal tips and ideas from the gardening expert at the MK Pulse magazine based in Milton Keynes. Go wild for a bug's life. It doesn't seem so long ago that we were advising you to tidy up the garden for the winter months. And here we are already looking towards the longest day of the year on June the 21st. Of course, the arrival of summer means the garden is at its active best with flowers, fruits and vegetables all lining up for inspection. Together with the blooms and nature's parlour, weeds also pop up everywhere, but their arrival is received less favourably. The easiest way to keep them down is to hoe your borders regularly in dry weather. If you mow, lawns need to be cut weekly, but perhaps have a rethink for the moment. If you leave the mower in the shed for a while, you'll get more free time and our pollinating insects will flock to your garden to enjoy the wildflowers that start to spring up. And our wildlife needs all the help we can give it. The charity Plant Life says we have more than 20 million gardens in the UK. Everyone that is left to flourish will make a difference to the climate and for our insects like bees and butterflies. Common plants recorded by Plant Life last year, which benefited from mow-free times, included creeping buttercup, white clover, oxeye daisy and yellow rattle. We all have a responsibility to play our part in giving a space back to nature, and no mow may was just the beginning. If you have a greenhouse, it will likely be bursting with good things. But if you fail to introduce shading and ventilation, all your hard work will wilt and die. Plants need humidity, shading and air circulation. Netting and blinds are widely available and worth the little investment. With temperatures rising and plants to nurture, watering is key. But climate change and increasing demand on H2O is having an effect on supplies in the UK. Plants start to use water when the sun rises, so watering in the morning is ideal. Evening watering isn't as effective and encourages our garden gastropods. If you soak them when temperatures are at their hottest, much will be lost through evaporation. How often and how much you water depends on the plant, of course. Heed the advice on your care labels and learn to read your plant. Too much or too little and it will let you know. Rainwater will always be the preferred choice for gardeners. If you can, introducing a water butt to your garden is ideal, although it won't pay dividends quite yet. So, how does your garden grow? June is the month we have been waiting for, the longest days and the borders all in flower. However, weeding and watering are most important. 
water butts are proving their worth. We are continuing to sow short rows of salad greens, beetroots and carrots, and the radishes are providing a tasting opportunity for the children. The leaves are edible too and make an unusual addition to the salad bowl. Young courgettes, pumpkins, squashes, sweet corn and tomatoes may be moved out of the greenhouse after careful hardening off. When the temperatures are above 10 degrees centigrade, that's 50 degrees Fahrenheit at night. It is time to plant up wall and hanging baskets using the special compost available for the purpose. Thoroughly water both the selected plants before planting and the filled baskets to ensure their establishment. Some roses may need deadheading and the sweet peas might have to be persuaded to cling to their support structures. Take care. The baby birds in the garden are hiding under hedgerows. They have left the nest but can't yet fly. They may look abandoned, but their parents will know where they are. Like them, spend your days in the garden. Enjoy it. DNF Soundings So that's it for another edition of the Black Country Talking News. A reminder to our CD listeners who have received CDs in padded envelopes that you don't need to send anything back to us. If you have a sight loss tip or someone you would like to wish happy birthday to, just say hello to. Maybe even a poem or talking book you would like reviewed, then please get in touch with us at the Beacon Centre. Call 01902 880 Email bctn at beaconvision.org or write to us at the Black Country Talking News, Beacon, Wolverhampton Road East, Wolverhampton, WV4 6AZ. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening and thank you to all our supporters, donators and volunteers who without their support will be unable to run this free service. Please note the information and views expressed in this recording does not necessarily represent the views of Beacon or Talking News and were accurate at the time of recording. Mentions of goods and services does not imply endorsement and whilst every care is taken to supply accurate information, Beacon and Talking News do not undertake liability for any errors. So it's goodbye from all of us, stay safe, have a good week and we look forward to bringing you next week's edition of the Black Country Talking News. Ta-ra!